Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is the recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen to this. Enjoy. So we've been, uh, we've been going through for several months now. I think we started uh, back at the end of the summer, maybe beginning of September, uh, spending a, a deep dive into the Gospel of John. And uh, part of making the... Uh, uh, the John Scripture journals available to everybody and, and what we were doing in church on a Sunday uh, and linking with what the kids were doing in, uh, in Sunday school as well was really just getting ourselves into the, into the depths of God's Word, looking for ways to make sure we could, uh, we could engage deeply and draw upon the truth that is the gospel. And so what we want to do today is we're just a, a little bit of a pause point uh, in that in the terms of where we are in John's gospel, we're going now into the, the last, really the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. We can get, get into that moment where, where everything slows down and the narrative of the gospel zooms in as we go through Jesus' uh, betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. Uh, and John spends an awful lot of time on that. But before we get into that section of the gospel, we want to do a bit of a recap. We want to look over some of the things that we've done before. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at uh, some of the big picture stuff from John's gospel. Why are we doing it? What are some of the things that we've, uh, we've really got out of it so far? Uh, we want to answer some specific questions that we know we've had people ask us. Uh, and on that note, uh, we want you, if you've got a question about uh, anything that we've done in John's Gospel so far or anything that you've been reading yourself, if you've got a question you would like to ask, uh, we've got a few that we'll address. Uh, if you can get it into us via that number, which will be on the screen for the duration of, uh, of our section now, we would love to address any specific questions that you've got. Um, if we say anything, it's dangerous, isn't it? It's very dangerous. Saying, Here's our number, text us a question. Um, we're going we're gonna to vet them uh, as we deem appropriate. I was going to say, we're going to have to caveat with we may not be able to answer it. But actually, if you've got a serious question, Luke will often say it and I say it. We like coffee and donuts. We will go for a coffee and a donut with you. We will pay. Um, you do not have to. The only energy you will have to expend is your time and potentially your fuel. Well, I mean, you can pretend. You can make one up, mate. You can make you know one what? up. <laughs> we would love to bless you with coffee and donuts. Um, and so uh, if we can't He's on answer Thursday, your, mate. If, <laughs> if we can't answer your question, um, then we will endeavor to, to come and speak to you and, and answer your question outside of today's context. But yeah, it's good. Yeah, be. and what I, what I like about when we've done stuff like this before is Abby has very intentionally called them question and response. Uh, rather, I'm all about question and answer. I love absolutes. Uh, if you ask a question and I don't know the answer, uh, it plagues me. I, uh, I have to find the answer. Like, I can't sleep until I've got a sufficient answer. Uh, but Abby is far more rounded and humble than I am uh, and recognizes that a lot of these things, when we, when we, when we dive into, into the scriptures, when we, when we look at God's word, when we ask these big questions, um, so often what, what is most important for us is not necessarily answers to questions, um, but looking at what God is longing to do in our heart, what God is challenging us with, how God is speaking to us. And so response or reflection on some of these questions is often uh, more valuable necessarily than, than straight answers. And so we are calling this a question and response time. Um, but once we've dealt with some questions, we wanted to finish the time this morning um, just with some application, looking at things in light of what we've been studying in John, what we've been thinking, what we've been looking at, um, how should we be different? Um, and so we want to end on a time of application. And then uh, if we've got time, what we'd love to do at the end is just leave a bit of space just for discussion. Uh, I think often in church what we do, we kind of, you know, we come in, uh, we get our tea and coffee, we sit down, we sing, uh, we hear from the word, we might sing again, uh, and then it's kind of everybody out of the door because we're done. And so we wanted to hopefully make a little bit of space uh, if, it's, uh, if it's appropriate for people to do, maybe just to reflect on a few of the things, just to have a bit of discussion, just to make that space uh, for us as God's people, as, God, as, as church family together to reflect on that uh, at the end. That's good. So I think we'll, we'll dive right in. And so... Um we were, we were talking about John, and we are at that point where basically the majority of John is done before the end of, uh, of Jesus' life, like we said. And so, what would be your elevator pitch for John's gospel? So, I think this is, a, this is a good way of thinking about the Bible. And I've often been told, if you can't explain something succinctly, or more specifically, if you can't explain it to a, uh, to a child, then how well do you understand it? So, I love the idea of, of an elevator pitch. So, I wrote mine one down here. Uh, and I've said, uh, each and every one of us can see the injustice, pain, frustration, and brokenness in this world. Uh, that our hearts cry for something more, 
uh, and yet we seem to be part of the problem so often rather than the solution. And God's plan is to make all things new, to redeem and renew humanity, to fix what is broken, and that solution is found in Jesus. And the Gospel of John makes that clear, that Jesus comes to give us life by laying his life down. Uh, that he comes to restore us into right relationship with God by bringing us into God's family. Uh, and in Jesus' words, he comes to give us living water that wells up within us that overflows into eternal life. Much better than mine. Mine was much more practical. The idea practical is like, is so for example, John is the earliest account of Jesus' life as far as we're aware. It was an eyewitness testimony from somebody called John. And actually for me, what the whole Gospel of John is set up in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was God, and the Word was, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can read it for yourself. I got that wrong. <laughs> but I think for me, if I was to put it down in one phrase, and I'll come back to this, because actually the reason for the book of John, he actually writes it in the book in a later chapter. We haven't yet reached it, but he actually just, just writes it down. He says, this is the reason for this gospel. And, um, and it says, I think that this is the reason for John's gospel in one sentence, which is Jesus is alive and real and can change your life forever. That for me is my, is my pitch. Mm. That's a much more succinct pitch than mine, isn't I it? I might have stolen it in my <laughs> research. Good. And if you find that pitch from like really easy research, I'm not going to tell you where I got it from, but I stole it. And if you find it, come and find me and I'll give you another donut. Here we go. Jesus is alive and real and can change your life forever. That's good. Yeah. So I think one of the things that when, I think if you've been a Christian for a long time, um, you've obviously, you know, you've often read, uh, you know, the gospel accounts. If you've grown up in church, you've heard these things again and again. Um, and yet what I found really, really precious about God's word is that you can approach it with fresh eyes, is that you can read the Bible and see things that you never saw before, or God can speak to you uh, through his word in a way that feels completely fresh or, or right into the season that you're in at the moment. And so I want to ask you, Abby, what have you seen or reflected on that is new in John's gospel? What has hit you in a new way? I think um, for me, one of the things was, um, and you can listen back in the podcast from it, but one of the things was, was washing Jesus' feet. When we, when we told that story, I did a lot of research on that because I'd had enough of hearing the same things being said. And it's not that those things aren't good. Like everyone who shares about the washing of the feet are sharing positive things, but I just had enough of hearing the same thing. I didn't want to regurgitate the same news. And I think it was just rereading that and realizing what Jesus was doing with Judas throughout the whole of that story. Consistently yeah. offering Judas a way back. And, and getting to the end of it, and I realized as I was reading it myself that I'm holding up a mirror and Judas is me. You know, that I could be any of those disciples, and I've often affiliated myself with the others, you know, Peter. I see you as a Peter person. Thanks very much. Yeah, so long as I'm not the one that Jesus loved. There's too much arrogance in that statement. But, um, but yeah, seeing myself as other things and seeing myself as, like, blameless, and it's like I'm one of the good ones, and I'm, you know, mm. as a Christian, I'm one of the okay ones in the room. Yeah. Whereas in actuality, I'm Judas. My yeah. heart is the heart of Judas. And that Christ offering me a consistent place to return to him just it is refreshing the idea of that yeah. whole story for me. I think it's a really powerful thing. I don't know if any of you, you do this when you read, particularly when you read the gospel accounts, is but to put yourself in that story mm. and sometimes sit in a different seat, in a different position, and you'll find so often when you, when you read Scripture that way, the words of Jesus will hit you on yeah. a different level. That if you, you know, if, you, if you imagine yourself in that room or, or listening to him uh, out in the, in the crowds and... and hear those words from a different perspective, I think often it, it, it lands or it resonates yeah. in a different way. And so for you, Luke, what's, uh, what hit you in a new way? There's, um, there's a bit right at the start of John's Gospel, and I've, been, I've, I've really enjoyed some of the things that it says about John the Baptist in this, and we've got a lot of questions about baptism in a minute. Yeah. So someone else enjoyed that as well. Yeah. But there's this bit in which um, you know, John the Baptist has this incredible ministry, and, and it's all about preparing the way uh, for, for God's promised king. Um, and yet there's this moment, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience in your life, when it feels like um, other people are out taking you on the things that matter most to you. Mm. Have you ever that moment when, uh, when you're really passionate about something or you're, you're really into something, and yet you see other people just better than you or more successful than you or things going okay in life for them, uh, and it's really difficult for you? And there's this moment in which John the Baptist realizes that, you know, that loads of his followers have started to follow after Jesus. Uh, and that Jesus is getting more attention, more crowds are following him. And, and in that moment, 
there's that wonderful moment in which you kind of think, well, if I was there, I would be like, oh, God, this is unfair. Mm. I've done nothing but serve you faithfully. I've done everything you've asked me to. And yet the response that we see in the mouth of John the Baptist is, uh, is he must become greater and I must become less. And, and just for me, that really hit home with, with not the idea that I'm in competition with anybody, but, but for me, if I'm, if I'm truly following and serving after Jesus, then my priority is seeing Jesus glorified. Uh, and it's not about what I get, not about what I want, not about what position that I fill or occupy. But if I'm a serious disciple of Jesus, then my true desire is to see Jesus glorified. And that really hit me in a, in a way that was quite personal, quite specific, in wanting to see uh, yeah, I, I, I identify that. I want to see Jesus honored and glorified in my life more than my own agenda, more than my own desires. I think it's, it, it's interesting, that kind of idea of humility. It's, uh, I think there's that phrase that says humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Yes. Does that make sense? That's so the one, yeah. you, there is a confidence in humility. And you can tell that by John the Baptist. There's a confidence in who Jesus is. Yes. Like you wouldn't put that much confidence in somebody that you had questions about or somebody that yeah. you're like, they are evil. How is it that they're you know, getting yeah. all this accolade and stuff? And I think that's the kind of next step, isn't it, in our humility journey from going, no, I understand that I might not be the best at this, but then yeah. to actually fully champion somebody yes. else, to fully invest in the life of that person, yeah. regardless of the detriment to you or, or whether that be an ego or whether yeah. that be a... Uh, money or whether that you know if we're putting into our days like yeah. the next step of our discipleship journey is going I'm not just going to be humble in mm. my life and in my sphere but to have the humility to to push somebody else it, forward yeah. is an incredible step in terms of my belief and also my faith in who Jesus is that yeah. it's not about my yeah. needing to push myself forward or my like mm. John knew exactly what he was there to do yeah because he had total and full understanding of who God was yeah. and then ultimately who and I think that's was. a big part and I think I'll touch on this in a moment but a big part of what we see in John's gospel not only is John the, 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 the John the Baptist this strong identity of why he's come and what he's there for mm. but you see it in Jesus and I think it is really brought home in John's gospel in a way that the others don't is, is Jesus' radical understanding of who he is and what he's called to do. Yeah. That it's not just a matter of Jesus' is kind of feeling his way through the circumstances that come to him, but he understands who he is because he recognizes his relationship with the Father, his mission, his purpose, and as a result, there's this, there's this clarity about what he does. And I think it's true with, with John the Baptist. He recognized that his purpose was to come and prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, and, as, and if he's doing that, he knows he's in line with God, what, God, what God has called him to yeah. do. That's good. So I think this is the next one where it is a question and response, because if this was a question and answer, I think you change your mind oh within a week. Yeah, so probably. this next question is this, what verse or passage or story has been your favorite and why? It's got to be a response, because yeah. I would imagine if me and you have this conversation. So can I give you two? You can give me two, only because there's, I've got two. Oh, good, there we go. <laughs> so I think there's, favorite verse there's, there's one that we haven't got to yet, and I think one of my favorite passages in, not one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible um, let alone just in the Gospel of John, is in John 21, when, um, when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. So Jesus has, has died. They've seen him uh, killed on this cross, and yet three days later, uh, they've seen the, the resurrected Jesus in their midst. And they're kind of in that moment in which they're not quite sure what to do next, and they're kind of hanging around going, well, well what is the next step? Uh, and they go, out, uh, they go out fishing that night, and they catch nothing. And then uh, there's that moment where Jesus appears to them on the beach, He's got breakfast ready, and he brings them in, and they just, they just sit in his presence. Uh, and just there's so much in that passage uh, in, in John chapter 21, in that story, that I absolutely love. So I'm looking forward to getting to that one later. Uh, but the other one that we have then is in John 11 uh, with the story of Lazarus, uh, and, and specifically Jesus' interaction with Martha. Um, and I love how you know, both Mary and Martha are in the same moment of grief, and Jesus responds to both of them very, very differently. But his words... Um, his words to Martha, who's just, uh, she's lost her brother, uh, there's, there's the pain and the frustration of that, and she comes to Jesus with, with all her frustration, with all her uncertainty, with all her pain. Uh, and Jesus' words to her is, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, that idea that anyone who believes in me, though they die, uh, would live. And just, just how Jesus grounds her pain and her uncertainty in a promise 
uh, that I think we can build life on. And I think that passage is absolutely incredible. And that's the one that I want read at my funeral. Uh, it's the one that I constantly go back to for, 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 for strength and for comfort and for encouragement. And so probably one of my favorite passages in, in all of Scripture. That's good. I like it. So mine, I've got a few as well. So um, if you've got your books, page 33, why not use them if we have them? So one of mine is um, uh, when the Samaritan, so the Samaritan woman, um, uh, it says uh, from verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the time believed him because of the woman's testimony. And he, to- he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his word, many more became believers. This is the bit I love. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And for me as a leader, one of the things was that it's important that as I preach and teach and share, and we share testimonies, that actually everything points towards Jesus, because mm-hmm. otherwise we just make disciples of ourselves yeah. and our own th- theology and this idea of testimony is important is the first thing that people will listen to because people like stories jesus was the master storyteller you read through the gospels it's all stories just a way of trying to get in as many people as possible and and don't be afraid of your testimony and share your testimony but also if somebody's got a question you've got the ultimate person who will answer that question for them in the way that they want you can point them directly to jesus you don't Mm -hmm. have to have the answers and what will happen is, is if they start to engage in a relationship with Christ for themselves, he is his own advocate. Yeah. You do not have to try and force people or try and uh, make a conversation happen. You share your testimony of what God's done in your life, and God will do the rest if you point them towards him. So that was one for me. That's good. And then the other one as well is page 61. Uh, I've been in school. Turn to page, turn to 61. page 61. Well, technically it's 60. Um, and it says this... Um, Jesus says this, uh, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing I just want to say where it's like the Trinity. All the way through this, this is, I'm kind of pushing on to my next answer. But all the way through this, Jesus just declares who he is. And there's this one point just before it in um, verse 14 where it says, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf. So basically what's happened is the Pharisees are like, your testimony by itself isn't good enough. You always have to have a witness um, for a testimony. And, and they were saying, look, you testify to this yourself. It's not good enough by yourself. And this is what Jesus said. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and where I am going. And what I love, and I think it was your, you shared this, it was the idea that when, when Jesus said where I came from, he had security in his identity. Mm. And then he says where I am going, he had security in his purpose. Yeah. And I love that it says, Jesus says, do as I do and do as I say. So in my simple mind in this moment is, I am going to try and be secure in my identity because I know where I've come from or I know who saved me or I know Jesus. Mm. And I need to be secure in my purpose. Mm. And I think for us, again, it's that discipleship journey of going, know whose you are. Know who you belong to. Mm. That will be your identity. And then know where you're going. Like, that sounds really simple because we don't always know where we're going. But the point is the destination isn't the thing that you're focusing on. It's the one who brings you to the destination. Like a sat-nav, you just trust the sat-nav, Right? And I mean, I've heard terrible stories where like two women in Australia actually drove straight into the river because it told them to go that way. But the point is, is that you put in the destination and our destination is eternity. Our destination is Jesus. Mm. But he's the one that will guide us through. And so I have surety of my purpose. Mm. And so if I'm doing as Jesus does and doing as Jesus says, I want to be able to say, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. And I want that to be my testimony. And those two things hit me. That's good. Yeah. Well, on that note, before we get to some specific questions, and I would encourage you now, if you've got any specific questions, and if there's anything that we say that provokes a question, you've still got some time. Uh, But I'd say, Abby, what has surprised you in your study? So while you've been studying, John, is there anything that's kind of been a surprise or been interesting or, or a bit different as you've been reading through? I think so. And I think, like, I want to caveat this with, like, I'm dumb. Because this shouldn't surprise me. But as I've been reading it, this has been the thing that surprised me. And I think just how blatant the claim of Jesus was making about his, his divinity. 
Hmm. Not just his identity, his absolute divinity. It's not hidden at all, so I've written this down. I know Jesus often spoke in parables, and there are times where it seems he's a little vague, but about this specific, his divinity, about this specific subject, there is no doubt. Hmm. We cannot say, but maybe he was saying. He is the Son of God, and there is no other way apart from him. And it's, really a, it's a really unsettling claim in today's society. So as I've been proclaiming that, there's been a little bit of my humanity because of the culture that we live in that doesn't want to proclaim it because to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the only way to the Father and it cannot be distu- disputed is a problem in our pluralistic pure, society. Yeah. It's so problematic for people because the problem is, is that... Um, the reality of, of our, our like generation and our society is that my truth is important. Yeah. My experience tells me what's right, and I am the truth of what it is. Yeah. So what I think matters most. And I think for me, if there's one thing, it's like there's this thing of like picking and choosing our own faith mm. to, to kind of go with what it is we want. And and I think the problem is, is that when we do pick and choose what we want, our beliefs stand in stark contrast to who Jesus is. Yeah. And so for me, the thing that has been kind of like, the big thing about reading John is that as I've been proclaiming, Jesus is the only way, and that he is the one who um, uh, died on the cross for me and rose again and three, three days later, and he is the only way to the Father. As I proclaim in that, I'm realizing the aspects of me that I have made idols mm. in my own life that I have to lay down. There are things that I don't want to be true of the Gospels. It would be easier if it were different. Absolutely right. But if I get this truth in me, all of the others start to make sense because it goes back to that purpose and identity. Yeah. I believe who Jesus says he is. And what's fascinating about that is that was very much the experience of the early church, Mm. is that here you've got a group of of kind of young people Jewish men or Jewish people, because there were men and women that were following Jesus, all of a sudden um, have this massive revelation that Jesus claims to be God from heaven come down to earth. She's just falling into a box there. She's okay. If you're on the podcast. Yeah, no context. No context. That's fine. We'll leave it now. A child just fell into a box. But the the, the early church had that same experience in which um, they they were speaking into a society uh, where there was a whole multitude of, of options when it came to religion. It was a very religious society. In fact, the Roman Empire and beyond, incredibly religious. Uh, a lot of diversity in those religious claims. And yet the early church claimed, came in and claimed Jesus is the only God. That this crucified Messiah is the only answer to the, to the, the longings within the human heart. To the, uh, the, the questions and the challenges that we have about the world around us. The solution to ultimate reality and life in itself. Uh, and they had their same experience. And there were many people, again, equally you talk about you know, liking to pick and choose what aspects of faith we like. Which is massively relevant in our postmodern society. Where it's all about truth that comes out of experience. Uh, and the great opportunity that we've got as followers of Jesus is to talk about the experience of encountering Jesus. Yeah. And that bringing them to the grounded truth of who he is. Mm. Uh, but in the, in, you know, in the first century, a massive challenge for the church was, was the same thing. This uh, religious belief uh, called Gnosticism. Uh, and a big part of Gnosticism was very much about picking and choosing uh, and bringing together, blending different beliefs that were current at the time. And you got all these, these challenges of blending aspects of Christian faith with, uh, with Jewish mysticism and Greek philosophy and, and ancient... Uh, um, uh, kind of Ro- Roman paganism, bringing it all together in a blend that, that felt more comfortable, felt more exciting. And, and the challenge of the early church was to stand up for the truth of who Jesus was against that backdrop. And so I think in many respects, we've got a lot of similar challenges when we look at the Gospel of John uh, that those first disciples had of proclaiming the exclusive truth of who Jesus is uh, to a world that is far more comfortable with picking and choosing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I might be dumb that I didn't realize that, but... But you get the important stuff, man. Yeah, and, and just that. I don't think you're dumb at all. I don't know why I'm agreeing with this. No, but I think there, it's just that reality for me, if I can hit that home, it's like, if I am sure who Jesus is, all of my other worries and anxieties should mm. subside, going back to that thing of going, I need to make him greater, which is all the way back to what we were saying yeah. about John the Baptist. So for you, what has uh, surprised you, um, if anything? 
I don't know why, but I don't know if, if those of you who watch a lot of YouTube, and I think one of my major vices is, is watching my time go down the drain watching videos on YouTube. Um, but occasionally you'll get hooked on an algorithm and it'll pick up, oh, you're interested in this particular thing and throw you loads of videos on that. For some reason, I've kind of got stuck in this algorithm of um, Muslim apologetics. So loads of Muslim speakers just kind of come up on my YouTube feed, and I've no idea how it happens. But what is fascinating is when you, when you look at how Christians engage, when there's that kind of Christian, um, that, that uh, dialogue between Christians and Muslims, is that John chapter 10 seems to be the, the real um, kind of bedrock uh, of where that, kind of, where that fight takes place for the identity of who Jesus is and what Jesus claims to be. And so spending a lot of time just looking at some of the incredible claims that Jesus makes about him and his relationship to the Father and what that looks like, what that means, uh, the unique things that he claimed. Again, it's coming back to that idea of, of Jesus' understanding of who he was, Jesus' own identity, uh, that Jesus is one with the Father, that Jesus is sent with the Father, that Jesus experiences that, that perfect, unbroken relationship with the Father. And that is central to who he is. Uh, and if we, we believe, as I, as I understand that we do, that if Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, which is what he said to his disciples, and that Jesus serves as an example of what it means to walk in perfect relationship with the Father, that his, as his disciples we emulate that, that is the relationship with God as our Heavenly Father that Jesus is inviting us to and to share and to walk in. And I've just found that just, just really, really interesting. A lot of study, a lot of, a lot of depth, a lot of going into the, the, the intricacies of the Greek uh, that we won't do now, um, but that has been really, really eye-opening, really interesting for me. So, th so there's the invite. You don't have to just, just ask Luke to start talking about that, and if you're going for coffee and donuts, he will just continue, and you can listen. It's a dangerous thing to and do. And enjoy your coffee and your donuts. Mm -hmm. We have had a great question, and I think it might be worth us asking that, because it's from the youth table. Oh. And so I'm going to prepare you, Luke, that you need to be as succinct as possible. So we're going to do these questions quick-fire style, Yes. And so Two minutes or less. Yes, and so... Be as succinct Don't as... Don't laugh. So it's <laughs> I can do it. So this is a question before we get to question five. And, and the youth table have asked this. It's from John 12, um, uh, 25. And it's on page 90 if you want to read it. Uh, it says this. Um, I'm going to read it in context. I think it's always good to read passages within the context, not just read them out of the context of it. So I'm going to read around it from 23. It says, Jesus reply, replied... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it, it produces many seeds. This is the question they're asking. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. So they're asking the question, what does... John 12:25 mean anyone who hates anyone who loves their life will lose it and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for it's a great life. question and I often found when Jesus spoke this way he was very confusing um, number one Jesus is not advocating that we hate our life agreed I think we can see that clearly in scripture God God instructs us uh, to honor each other, to honor ourselves, to recognize that we are vessels of God's spirit, that God has created us in his image with dignity and value. So number one, we don't hate ourselves. So what is Jesus saying? Uh, this we understand to be a very common uh, Jewish or rabbinical rhetoric device. And so Jesus does this all the time. He, he lays out two extremes. So you see in John's gospel, he talks about light and death, uh, sorry, light and darkness, life and death. Uh, this idea of loving and hating. And it's what, it's what it's there to do is to illustrate the extremity of it. And so it's by giving a really big example, a really extreme example, Jesus is looking to illustrate what he's saying. So when he's talking about hate in their life, it's a comparative thing. It's not saying you have to hate it, but it's saying the idea is, is where do you place your ultimate value? Where is what is most precious to you? Whereas most people will say, well, the most important thing in my life is me and looking after me and sorting me out. Jesus is saying, if you forget about that, if you make me your focus, as he says elsewhere, uh, I think in Matthew's gospel, but um, about seeking first the kingdom of God, about placing the things of God first and everything else. God will take care of the everything else. And so Jesus isn't advocating we, uh, we hate our life, um, but he's saying if, if we make our existence all about ourselves, so if anyone who loves their life will lose it, if we make us the sole value, the most important thing in the universe, yeah. then ultimately what we'll find out at the, at the end of our life, and maybe not even at the end of our life, that we find that that way of living is not satisfying, is it doesn't fulfill us, it doesn't bring us purpose.
And what Jesus is inviting us to is to find true life in him, mm. true purpose in him, true value yeah. in him. Yeah, I think it's true as well, like remembering that love and hate aren't the opposite of each other. We can see that this is hyperbolic in a way, because actually the opposite of love is apathy. Like hate is a strong enough emotion in and of itself. And, and so we can see that Jesus is speaking in a way. It's a whole different talk in itself. It's a right whole there. different talk. But it's like recognizing, this is why it's important that when you read this scripture mm. and you look at it, that you try and read what, what is being said. Yeah. Like you don't just, there is a face value to scripture, but when we're reading it, it's, it's reading it within the context. So yeah. great question, guys. Okay, we're going to quick fire these questions and most of them are going to be, great answer, by the way. Oh, thanks. And it was almost two minutes. It was almost two minutes. Maybe a little you just bit. spoke I, a little bit just faster. Just very, very quickly. I did, yeah, I did speak very it's quickly. Fine. When it comes to questions, and this is a more general principle, uh, I think we, we believe it's important to have a faith that is robust and is questionable. We think you should be able to ask questions of anything. That, that if our faith can't stand up to scrutiny, then we need to ask, what is it worth? Yeah. And so asking questions, it's, I, I don't know why, but you know, religion has got a bad rep for allowing people to question it. Mm. Uh, I think in Cap City, we, we want to encourage uh, curiosity. Uh, we want to be um, inquisitive about these things that we actually believe that when we delve deeper into God's word, we're rewarded with greater insight, greater knowledge, greater relationship with Jesus mm. um, rather than anything else. So yeah. Ask the questions. So here are these questions. This next question, why is John so different from the other Gospels? So no parables, lots of talking, less stories, different, this new stuff that the other Gospels don't have. Yeah. Why is John so different? John is about 90% unique compared to the rest of the Gospels, which is massive. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often referred to as the synoptic Gospels because generally speaking, they, they, they use the same language. Sometimes they say the exact same thing. It's like they've They've either copied each other or copied another source, or more realistically, they're both referring to the exact same events. Um, and yet, John, there's about 90% of the stuff in John that you don't find directly in the other Gospels. And so it is very, very different from the others. And I think part of the reason for that is, is John is probably writing a little bit later than the others, that the needs of the Christian community are slightly different, the focus and the emphasis is different. Uh, however, I think what John is describing it is a very specific aspect of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Uh, and what you'll see within that, even when you just look at it uh, in the context of the gospel itself, when you, you know, take out the external stuff, is most of what happens in John's gospel revolves around Jesus' activity near and around Jerusalem. Whereas most of the other Gospels, Jesus is moving around a lot more, and often it takes place further away in the northern half of, of, the, the, kind of the, the, the kingdom of Judea, up, up in Israel, up in other territory. And it's like Jesus is focused on different things depending on where he is. And so his language and his focus and his teaching is different. What we get in John that is unique is long long discourses, long discussions, whereas what we find in the synoptics, shorter bit, story, teaching, story, teaching, it's, spot, it's, it's peppered around like that, whereas in John, John being an eyewitness, having spent this time intimately personally with Jesus, wants to give us that, that depth of insight into who he is, and he focuses on the longer kind of talk, saying, discourses that Jesus has. Um, so I think it's different because it's looking to tell, tells the same story, but it's looking to tell it from a very specific focus and direction. Just want to acknowledge that right at the very beginning, I said that John was probably one of the earliest accounts, and you've just said quite clearly that it's one of the later accounts. Now we're not going to talk about that. But there's I just a whole whole debate about, exactly about dating gospels, so which I think, is really exciting. Exactly, but we won't do now. And so we, that's why it's that thing of going just acknowledging that there are differences in the room, mm. that I'm prepared that my opinion isn't right, depending on my you know what my musings are. The likelihood is is that I know that Luke has done a lot more research into this, so I'm more inclined to lean that way if it's true, but I just wanted to acknowledge it. I said it at the start, and Luke said something different, and that's okay. And we're allowed to disagree. We are. So the next question is this. Why did Jesus change Peter's name to Cephas? So, depend, do, you want, do you want the Aramaic pronunciation? Do you want the Greek pronunciation? I, don't, I just you, whatever. So what you'll see is in... Caiaphas. Cephas. So often it's pronounced, you'll see Cephas. Kephas. The, uh, the, the Greek Aramaic would be Kephas or Kepa in the Aramaic. I was right. And so that idea of, um, so you've got this guy who's called Simon, son of John. Hmm. And Jesus says, your name is going to, I'm going to call you Peter. And it's one of those weird things. It's dependent on the relationships you've got. Apparently, we give the people we love the most nicknames. Hmm. So if you've got, unless you're in high school. I was going to say people would have loved me a lot, but they didn't tell a, me by the nicknames they gave nickname, me. Oh, fair enough. Oh, sad, isn't it? I think, uh, I think unless you're a teenager in which you give nicknames to uh, be particularly cruel or unkind, 
generally speaking, we give, we give yeah. affectionate nicknames to the people we value most. Uh, I think there's, um, there's a whole host of, of biblical examples of God changing people's names at significant and strategic points in their life. You know, think particularly of Abraham, uh, thinking of, uh, of Jacob, um, that when God engaged with them, when God changed the trajectory of their life, there's that moment in which he gives them a new name and a new identity. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is what is going on here with, with Peter. Yeah. This, here's this guy, Simon, son of John, and, and Jesus says to him, I'm going to call you Peter. Now what Peter means, so Cephas or Kephas uh, or Petros in the Greek, just means rock. And what, is, what Jesus is doing here is, is changing his name. And what I, think, what I think is happening here is what Jesus is doing is directing Peter's character in a new direction. Yeah, because I, re- I read about that, because I know where you're going with this, and I want to finish with that rather than what I'm going to say. Um, that Simon needs to hear or to listen, hearing. So that's what Simon means. Yeah. So it's the hearing, it's a passive thing. But then Peter means rock. So it's almost like Jesus is setting him up in an active motion. Mm, that's nice. Because we know that as, as we read on through the gospel, that it says, on this rock, I will build my church. That Peter's life was going to become an active one. That Simon mm. Peter's life was going to be moved. And so Jesus was moving Simon from his, his name, which meant hearing or listening, yeah. which you actively listen. I understand that, but, but go with me a little bit because it helps me. That God was like you say, moving his trajectory yeah. into a, a forward, yeah. active motion. Because there's another really significant one where an angel comes and speaks to some of the Old Testament, right? You, we were talking about that, which was... Um, oh, Gideon. Oh, yeah, and Gideon. And he, he, the, is it the angel that calls him? So basically, Gideon, yeah, so the Israelites are being persecuted by the Midianites. Gideon is, is he's threshing wheat in a wine press, which basically means he's in this big tub with these wooden walls on around him, and he's threshing his wheat there so no one can see him. So basically, what the, the, the narrative there in the book of Judges is saying, basically, Gideon's acting like a little bit of a coward. So he's, he's doing his day-to-day job, but he's hiding. He's in hiding, just threshing the wheat, just getting by. This angel shows up and calls him Mighty, Mighty Warrior. Warrior. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's meant to be comical in the Hebrew. It's meant to be this, this juxtaposition between the, the very activity that Gideon is engaging in and how God chooses to speak to him. Mm, yeah. And I think we see that here with Peter, is that, that Peter is the most flaky, foot in your mouth, all over the place, um, scatterbrained kind of guy. He's like, he's the first one in the room at every situation, but he's, he's often the first one to say the, the, the most foolish thing. And, and yet what Jesus calls out in Peter is that you will be Solid, a solid foundation for those around you, yeah. that, that you will be the one that others come to depend on, that you will be that rock. And he calls character out of Peter that, that maybe Peter doesn't even see of himself. And there's this wonderful passage, I forget the reference, um, but, but Jesus, when talking about his, his arrest and his betrayal, he says, but, but after all this is done, go and strengthen your brothers. And there's that charge almost to Peter that when all this has happened, when you've gone through the mill, you know, when you've betrayed me, when you've denied even knowing me, is after everything, I'm, I'm asking you to live up to your name, to go and to be, the, be the, that solid foundation, that strengthener yeah. uh, of, of, of the other disciples. Yeah. That's great. And um, yeah, we'll come back potentially. Okay. We're going to move on now. There's a few of these questions now that are um, about John the Baptist, and I'm hoping we're going to get through them all, but I am I'll going really to... Quickly, then. No, no, I want you to answer them properly. Okay. And if the question hasn't been answered and you know the person who asked the question, you take them out for coffee. Fair enough. All right. I'll do that anyway. Okay, right. So the next question is this. What was John the Baptist's authority and commission to baptize as he did? So can I just, just say, we're now getting into a deeper question. So can we just lift ourselves a little bit so we're talking 30,000 feet looking down yeah and then get into the question just okay. so we don't we're aware that everyone in the rooms understands why this question's being asked yeah. so uh, so all of a sudden you've got the introduction to the story it happens in in all of the gospels there's reference to John the Baptist he just this this random kind of this random guy who lives out in the wilderness who's dressed in camel skin and eating bugs begins to declare that God's kingdom is coming and that people should repent, and in keeping with that repentance, be baptized, which is a, a, a Jewish practice. That's what they would do with, um, with Jewish converts, is they would undergo this process of baptism, entering into the family of God. And he would call people to a, a baptism of repentance. Uh, and the question is, well, well, what authority did John have to do that? Like, who sent him to do this? And I think 
John answers that himself in, so in the Gospel of John, and this is the difficult with too many Johns, John is a very common name, which is why often in the Bible uh, you'll you'll have them kind of referencing which John they're talking about. Um, But John says in, in, uh, John the Baptist says in John 1.33, he says, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the one who you see the Spirit come down on and remain on will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He basically recognized that his calling is from God, uh, and as you go through some of the Old Testament passages that, would have, uh, that the early church picked up and attributed to John the Baptist, there's that one in Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. That whole chapter, go read Isaiah 40 and think about how that fits in with the, the ministry of John the Baptist and then the ministry that, that Jesus is coming to deliver. Yeah. Uh, again, in Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That is God speaking to his people. Mm. And so John sees himself as operating in that calling that God has called him to bring the nation to repentance in preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah. We even see it in, in Luke, just looking at Luke 1. It, it actually fully says to Zechariah, who's John's dad, it explains who John is going to be. So again, yeah. it's like not just reading this all in isolation. We've got this full book for a reason. And in John 1, it says, you know, so the angel says, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear your son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness as many will rejoice in his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Mm. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts Mm. of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord and be people prepared. Yeah. So there is that. So we're the authority comes from, if we just read John in isolation, mm. he, he is declaring his own authority. Yeah. But we don't just read John in isolation, we read it. It's recognized that he's yeah. there to prepare yeah. the way for Jesus. And I think that links in with the next question, yeah. uh, was if John was preaching a baptism of repentance, Jesus, uh, John's message was repent and believe. It's like a turn, a, turn your life around and focus, focus back towards God. Then why on earth did Jesus get baptized? What did Jesus have to repent on? Because the idea is the New Testament emphatically states Jesus was without sin. He was the perfect son of God. So what did he have to repent of? So again, I just want to lift a little bit. What is baptism? Why do we believe in it? Why was it brought around to kind of explain? So yes, that, I think that question is why was Jesus baptized when it was a baptism of repentance? What? Mm. What? Because this is like, what have we got to remember is that as the church, we've been understanding and seeing baptism for generations. This is the inauguration of what baptism is Mm. and so just a bit of an explanation around that so the the jewish practice for baptism it was a kind of a complicated one around and it was most often associated with bringing jewish proselytes those who wanted to convert to judaism a part of that would be going through the ritual of of a baptism and the word baptism baptismo in greek literally just means to dunk um, or to plunge it's typically used in textiles when you would dye cloth you would baptize it in the dye um, and it's that idea of being plunged or immersed and so it was very much associated with the idea of, um, of, of washing away of the old and bringing on to the new uh, and John's understanding here is it's a baptism of repentance it's the idea as you would say you know I'm, I'm, I'm turning away from my sin I'm turning to trusting God I'm, I'm, I'm repenting of the things that I've done wrong that I shouldn't do and I'm longing for God to make me new and so that idea of that's what it was then, it was very much about repentance and turning away. Now, obviously, the Christian significance, uh, it's, it's come to mean more than just repenting, but that entry point into the family of God, that as we baptize, it's not just about saying, uh, I turn away from my sins, but I turn away from the old me and look to a new me who belongs to God. So it's an entry point into God's family. And so this question then, why did Jesus need to be baptized? So on one level, he didn't. Um, and you see in Matthew's gospel, uh, John, John immediately says, I recognize who you are. You should be baptizing me. And so John recognized that Jesus didn't need to be baptized. And yet Jesus' response uh, was, let it be this way. Uh, this is proper for us to do, to fulfill all righteousness. And then as a result of that, John consents and lets him do it. And so I've got three reasons that I'll give really quickly. Number one, Jesus is effectively endorsing the activity and ministry of John. He's saying that everything that John was doing is right, and it gets God's seal of approval. That I I recognize that your ministry says, I'm preparing the hearts of God's people for the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is effectively saying, you're right, I'm him. The second one, I guess, to repent is to turn from our path and follow God's. 
that whole idea is, is yes, for, for us it's about turning from sin and turning towards God. And yet for Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, we understand that the first kind of major action that he does uh, beginning his ministry is to be baptized. And you get this voice from heaven coming saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry, not by repenting in the sense of turning away, but turning towards what God has called him to do. Uh, and the last one, which uh, this idea of fulfilling all righteousness. And I don't know if it's got any theological merits to it, but I remember hearing it as a young Christian and loving the imagery. This idea that as people went to the River Jordan to be baptized by John, they would confess their sin and be plunged into the river, effectively leaving behind the sin, uh, leaving behind uh, the, the, the negative things that they'd done, leaving it there in the river, as it were. And that imagery of Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, which is what John calls him in, uh, in John 1, uh, Jesus comes, the Lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. He goes down into that water. He takes on those sins that have been left there uh, so that they could be truly dealt with as he dies for sins on the cross. Mm. And so I think that then leads us to the kind of next question, which I'm just going to um, turn to. So we were looking at John 4, 2. Um, and it's the question is, why did Jesus not perform baptism? So in John uh, 4, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. Yeah, so why wasn't Jesus doing why it? Why wasn't Jesus doing Simple it? Simple answer. If you were baptized by Jesus, you would say, my baptism was better than yours. Here we go. And that, I, I genuinely think that's the reason. We see that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is there's this huge issue that the Apostle Paul has with that church. I think it's my all, favorite answer, Luke. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's really, really simple. But yeah. we see it happen. It's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Peter. Yeah, I'm yeah. a follower of Apollos. I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Jesus. Is that we love, as, just as human beings, we love to fight and one-up each other. And, and I think genuinely the reason Jesus doesn't do it is because he doesn't want to build this hierarchy. Yeah, He's not looking to build this idea that, that, that these are the better ones because they were baptized by me. And so the, the disciples that followed Jesus, many of them we know were, were disciples of John. Mm. They've been baptized by John. And Jesus isn't looking to, to lay down this competition and this hierarchy of followers. Uh, and I think he just, just in, in wisdom, in, you know, in, in godly wisdom, just cuts that out entirely. Mm. I love that sometimes the answers don't have to be holy. They've just got to be practical. I think sometimes we, we, kind of, we, we assume that everything Jesus does has got this, this kind of mysterious air of theological yeah. depth and significance. And yet I think Jesus was, was the most wise and practical person who ever lived. Yeah, yeah. And if we believe that, then sometimes we should look at what he does and go, there's just wisdom to follow yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. this weird esoteric theological truth that we're... Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just about wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, so we're coming to the last kind of, of our questions before we look at application. So if you do have a question, please send it in to me. But the kind of the last question is this, and I, I think I asked this as, as well. And I'm, rather than asking you, I like sent it to you when you asked the questions. Was why is the story of the woman caught in adultery not in the earliest copies? So did it actually happen or are we reading a story? So if you look at John chapter 8 in any modern Bible... It's either that, that first passage is either in brackets or in italics, or there's some little commentary around it saying in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel, this story isn't there. And I, I can remember as a, you know, as a young Christian thinking, I feel quite uncomfortable about that. This is God's word. Like we need to, we need to know what should be in there and what should. So why on earth is it there? Um, and a, a big passion of mine at the moment, I'm longing to do something on this. Uh, at some point this year, is, is looking at how the New Testament came together, how we got the stories that we've got. Why is it that we know what we know about Jesus? And why is it we can be confident that what is in our Bible is trustworthy? Um, but what we, what we know is that, yeah, the earliest fragments of the New Testament, of, of the Gospel of John, of, uh, don't have this story in them. And yet, there's something about it that rings true with who Jesus is and what, um, and what he taught. Uh, and the reason we think it is genuine, the reason I'm convinced that it's a genuine retelling of something that Jesus did is because in the, in, in the very, very early evidence of church leaders talking about Jesus, um, and it comes specifically from this guy called Papias, uh, and Papias wrote a lot about Papias knew John. He knew him personally. He heard him speak. Uh, he, was, um, he was a contemporary of some of the other early church leaders, that kind of next generation of church leaders. And one of the things he recounts is this story of how Jesus um, uh, responded to this woman. I think it doesn't have all the details we have here, but, but it describes this story as one he heard from the Apostle John. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of builds in this, it, it, you know, it very quickly starts to appear in 
copies of the New Testament. Some people just kind of chucked it in that part of John. Some people chucked it in the end of Luke's gospel. And so the early church believed this was a genuine Jesus story. Um, and again, textual critics nowadays look at it, and some people think it's, it's correct that John wrote it and it belongs in John's gospel. Others think it's, a, it's an accurate recollection of something that really happened, but it's part of the tradition of the early church, and they just had to find somewhere to put it because it was too good to leave out. All sorts of debate around that, but the, I think the reason is we can be confident that it happened, but it probably wasn't part of, I certainly don't think it was part of John's original yeah. uh, gospel. Yeah, and I think this for me is like that question of, again, allowing us to have those questions. Like, it's quite uncomfortable to read, this wasn't put in the early Bible. Yeah. It's much easier to imagine that the New Testament just kind of descended from heaven mm. in perfect form in kind of King James English. Yeah. And it was just like, well, there you go, get, get going. And that's not what happened. Mm. And I don't think it robs it of its power yeah. or its impact by, by thinking differently from that. Because yeah. the way that it came about is absolutely fascinating yeah. and speaks to the truth of God's involvement in his church. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's that thing of going, like, God will, God has and will make sure that his scripture is exactly what we need it to be. And, and I think sometimes we get caught up in the, well, if John didn't write it, then it shouldn't be there. Mm. Reality is, is there's too much evidence to state that, it, you know, we can't dispute that it happened. The only thing we're disputing is when did it That's get it. put I in? I think what we can be confident is it's a story. It's a story that was cherished by the early church yeah. because it reflected something of, of, who, yeah. of what Jesus did. It yeah. reflected a real event that happened. and it was, it was too good to lose it to history. And yeah. So they had to put it in somewhere. Yeah. So I think that's the thing is allowing us to have those, you know, it's, it's good to kind of ask these questions, not just go over them. If you're reading the Bible, feel free to ask questions. Feel free to, to debate it. Um, even in your own mind, and not be afraid of that. I think historically, I certainly I think historically for me, I got along somewhere along the line that it wasn't okay for me to either one question the preacher or two question the scripture. Mm. And I think the problem is this is where it's a, I've changed like that word, uh, like question and answer to question and response. That I will get a response, and most of the time, if I ask God directly, that response will be for what I need for his, for His purpose in this time. And if I'm seeking the scriptures truthfully and honestly. Yeah. that I will find what God yeah. is wanting me to seek. And so for us to be able to ask those questions. So we're going to move into application. So this series is called All Things New. It's a reference to Jesus' words in Revelation. Um, what do we see being made new, and how is that achieved? Yes, it was interesting. I think when we, we actually kind of wanted to call this series a couple of different things, and I flip-flopped right at the last moment. Um, to call it on things, because I think the reality is, is what we see in the Gospel of John. And again, we see it through the Gospels generally, but specifically in John's Gospel, this idea of, of Jesus coming with intention um, to, to fix what is broken, to right what is wrong. Um, and ultimately with this, this idea, and, and Jesus in John's Gospel, the, the, these words are found in his mouth so often, the idea of bringing life, of bringing life, that he came, that we had, would have life in all its yeah. fullness, that those, you know, the discourse in John 3 about, about eternal life, in John 4 about uh, you know, rivers of, of, water, of living water, and, and just throughout the gospel, Jesus is talking about wanting to bring life that, that is new, that is different to the quality and the experience we have of life right now. No, that's good. And I think um, like the next, next question I think is asked to us, which is that idea of how are you living differently or wanting to be different as a result of your study and reflection of John. Hmm. And I think maybe if we, the reality is, is that question really needs to be asked of yourself. So we could sit here for the next two minutes in silence as we reflect on what that might mean. But I think if we just share a little bit. There's only one wrong answer to this one. And that's, that it's not different. Yeah. And I, th I think the truth is when you, when you engage seriously with scripture, it's, um, it's, it's like sandpaper sometimes. And I think the, the wonderful thing about Scripture is it can, it can be, if you do it properly, it's like, it, it's like sandpaper. It, it rubs off against you. Um, and if there are big, kind of jagged, pointy, spiky bits in your life that God wants to deal with, it's uncomfortable. Mm. That, that you, and, and for me, the biggest thing that I found with reading this, particularly with your message a few weeks ago about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and the fact that Judas was amongst those 12, and Jesus got down on his knees with a towel wrapped around him and washed the muck off the feet of Judas, a man who was mentally prepared to betray him. Um, and that idea of what it, what it means to love other people like Jesus. 
and, and me just thinking, well, I'm, I'm really lovable and loving when people are easy to love. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's I used to think before I had kids, I was super patient. I was, you know, blessed with this kind of godly, divine-like patience. Um, and kind of God just teaching me that it's, it's not like that. It's, it's easy to be patient when life is easy. Mm. You know, it's easy to be loving when the people around you are wonderful. And, and, and just that, for me, kind of, because Jesus talks so much about, about you know, the, the command that he gives as being one to love. The new command I give you, love one another yeah. as I have loved you. Yeah. That, and, and the way that Jesus has loved us and loved his disciples is, is often in the, in the face of his betrayer, in spite of hostility meant against him. Yeah. He still gets down and extends that love, that grace, that compassion. Um, and, and that, for me, has been a real challenge as well. How can I live with a greater compassion, greater love, greater mm-hmm. kind of Jesus-focused uh, desire to serve those around yeah. me? I think as well, like, just to be aware that, you know, if we're saying... How is it, first of all, how you live indifferently? How you live indifferently? How you live indifferently as a result of studying John. And I think, like Luke said, the only wrong answer is I'm not. And you're worried going, man, I don't feel as though I've changed at all. Mm-hmm. I think, I honestly believe that if you just sat down, even just for a moment and said, Jesus, what, what is it that I've learned from John? You might not get a succinct answer that me and Luke are able to share on a Sunday morning stood at the front. You might even just get a few words, or you might even just recall back what it was that one of us have said, but the point is, is that something? And so if I can encourage you where you are, even if you're looking at your your notes or looking back over stuff, like it's not, this this question isn't meant to catch you out and say you should have really changed by now. Why aren't you better? But I think (laughs) that it goes back to that thing that I often talk about of, of a sticky spirit. Like the spirit within you will catch hold of the truth that you need in your life, even if you don't realize that it's happening. And if you try and recall and ask God what it is that he has been saying or doing in your life, you will be surprised at the recall. Sometimes I think we think, oh, no, that must just be me. Or, oh, well, that was stupid. So I, why am I just thinking of, oh, well, they've talked about, you know, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So that must be me. It's like, no, that's the spirit recalling what it is that you need to hear. And so if I can encourage you in this week or whatever it might be, just take a moment, three, four minutes, just, just initially be quiet before God and then say, God, what, it is, what is it that I've learned? Yeah. How is it that I am changing? What is it that I can move forward with? And I think don't, don't despise the small things, like even if it's just a word or a feeling, that is something that God is doing. Yeah. And so that's my encouragement to you to apply that. And you're going to talk just a little bit about John 15. Is that right? That application. Oh yeah, the next. So it is the next one actually. I think um, was it week before last or was it last week? Neil shared on John 15. I think this is one of these central passages of of the Christian life. If you want to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I think this is the perfect place to start. Uh, and and Jesus says, if you remain in me, if you if you abide in me, if you if you center yourself and place yourself alongside me, you will bear much fruit. And there was that passage that comes before that when he's talking about, about his father being the vine dresser, as, as Neil said, the one who kind of trims back the vine. He says his desire is to, to cut back the things in our life so that we'd be even more fruitful. And that idea is what does it look like to live a fruitful Christian life? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I thought a lot about that, and I remember asking Neil at the end, what does it mean to be fruitful? Um, and I think his answer to me was really, really good. He says the obvious one is, is, is to look like Jesus. I think, well, okay, well, that's not great because I, you know, I don't think I look enough like Jesus in my life um, generally. But he says it's about being not perfect but growing. Mm. When we think about fruitfulness, think about the way that fruit grows. And Jesus really hammers home this metaphor. And again, you pick it up, um, uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul picks it up and talks to the fruit of the Spirit, which is the same kind of idea. Are those things gradually growing in your life? Is there a pattern of looking more like Jesus? Is there a habit of, of repenting and turning away from the things that aren't good and turning towards the things that are? You know, that, that kind of embracing that sandpaper effect sometimes of, of, of the Bible. Is, is, it, is it forming me into something better? It's not perfect, but it's gradual. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And I think the application, there you go, if you want it in a bit more of a succinct way than what I said, which is that idea of just even the slow plod. Yeah. You know, it's the tortoise and the hare idea, isn't it? The slow plod moving towards Christ. You'll get down the line two, three, four months later, and you'll find that you are a different person. And I think it's embracing the slow and steady. It's what, what um, Eugene Peterson called a, a long obedience in the same direction. Mm. It's not fast. It's not a sprint. It's not quick. There are no shortcuts. Um, 
you know, like, like any life relationship, it is about investment, it is about time, it's about traveling that road together. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what a fruitful Christian life looks like, is it's that long obedience in the same direction, that intentional following, yeah. um, you know, just day in, day out in the mundane, ordinary things. Mm. And I think it's that thing of like, if you remain in me and I, and I remain in you, that relational aspect. Yeah. Now, you know, our, we, we're not a relational gospel but we believe that we read the gospel through the lens of relationship mm. has to be read that way because that's the way that Jesus intended it when he came yeah. to earth and then um, went well, back in to that heaven. same passage Jesus says I no longer call you servants because servants don't know uh, their master's business but I call you friends mm. and Jesus is introducing that element in which relationship discipleship is not to look like Jesus is the boss we're the servant get on with doing what you're told yeah. but Jesus invites us into relationship that I think yeah. friendship with God is a, is a massively underplayed um, dimension for understanding what the spiritual life mm. should look like. And it's something that we will always and should always say from the front is that this isn't about your relationship with Christ through us, but your relationship with Christ directly. Um, that it's for you to engage in your relationship, that what you invest in, you will get out. Mm. Um, we are doing our best to to drive forward. And it's again that idea of the, that I'm holding on to with the, 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 the Samaritan woman, yes who has said, we now believe, not because just because of your testimony, but because yeah. we've seen and heard, yeah. that actually our constant desire is there would be a desire in you to reach out and a desire in you to pray and a desire in you to read the Bible. That, um, that a des you know, and for us, the best way that we can do that is, is you can ask questions. Yeah. And we might not know the answers. Luke probably will give you an answer, <laughs> but he might not know the answer. But the idea is, is that you engage in the relationship um, that is important yeah, to you. That's right. So, yeah, so we're down to our final question. Um, over the line now. Yes. Finish so, strong and succinct. And succinct. So what does a true follower of Jesus look like as outlined in John's gospel? Mm. I'll let you go first. Yeah. I think for, for me, looking through what John invites us to discipleship it with is um, a deep, intimate understanding of who Jesus is. That I think John, John wants to lift the curtain, as it were, on, on the identity of Jesus. As, as we see him for who he is, as we, as we understand the depth and the nuance, uh, the nuance um, and the intimacy of who Jesus is, that, that is what drives us into relationship. That that is what builds uh, our, our spiritual understanding. That is what increases our faith and our desire to follow him. As seeing him as he is, seeing him clearly. Um, you know, without the, the kind of the mystery and the ambiguity, but revealing who Jesus is, uh, th that I think in John's gospel, a, a, a passionate, a fulfilled, fruitful disciple of Jesus is one that sees the truth of Jesus and is, is motivated and moved by that reality. So if you want what John thinks this gospel is about, page 140 in your little books, which is uh, John 20, um, starting at verse 30. Um, I'll give you a bit minutes. This is literally the purpose of this book. And it says this, Jesus performed many of the signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Mm. For me, what's it looked like to a follower? What's it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And my whole thing has been that utter belief in who Jesus says he is, mm. that that then trickles into every other part of my belief in my testimony, belief in my understanding, belief in my ability to share the gospel in such a way that people might recoil, but it's still truth and that God can work through that. Mm. that. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life yeah. in his name. You know, so it's that thing of if we read from what the, the youth table asked, which was, why does it say we, we're going to, you know, hate our lives? It's not. It's, it's about having life. And I yeah. think sometimes we, we carry our faith a little bit like a burden, which totally is if we do not recognize who Christ is in it. Yeah. Because the problem is, is that we will have troubles in this world. And if we do not sit in uh, the presence of Christ, if we do not sit in the understanding of who he is, who he's made us to be, then our lives will be rubbish because life is rubbish yeah. and so I think for me it's 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 remembering that it's remembering who Christ is and what he has done and coming back consistently to his death and resurrection yeah 
that in the death was, was my pain and sorrow and suffering on that cross, and in the resurrection was my victory and my triumph. And that's where, that's where yeah. I live. Yeah. So the Apostle Paul talks about, about our lives being hidden with Christ in God, that in his death our sin is dealt with, in his resurrection our life truly begins. Mm. Um, so our hope is that, I know we've, we've, we've taken up a big chunk of time doing this, I hope some of it has been valuable, but at the very, very least, what, I, what I'd like all of us to take away from this is that, that, that when we ask these questions, I believe we, we grow closer to Jesus, is that we shouldn't be afraid of things that are uh, tricky. We should never be afraid of saying, oh, but what about this? Um, is that we believe that, that this, that's how Jesus operates. You see that in, in the Gospel of John. People come to him with their questions, and they're not shooed away for asking something that is awkward or difficult or uncertain, but quite the opposite, is that Jesus desires to lean in and build life into them. Um, and, and our hope uh, in Cap City in general is that, is that is how we should operate, is that, that we grow closer to God when we take our faith seriously. So we're going to draw this time to a close, but we want this conversation to continue, um, whether that be over coffee. We're actually, uh, our response is going to be coffee and conversation because um, we believe that's good and fellowship, even just enjoying one another's uh, company. Um, but we want to continue this conversation. And I think it's not continue this specific one about John, but we are passionate about continuing our conversation about our faith, our belief, as we continue to grow in Christ as individuals and as a church. And so we're going to pray. Um, and then, and then we'll, we'll close. Father God, our desire is that we, we see the Jesus revealed in the pages of these Gospels. That, the Lord, as we read John, as we read your word, as we, uh, as we read scripture, uh, that it would not be uh, an intellectual exercise of just learning about information, but in these pages we would find life, and we would find life in the person of Jesus, uh, our Savior who died and rose for us and offers that new life, that eternal life, that well of living water that flows over into life everlasting. Uh, Jesus, I pray that this time would, um, would open doors for us to lean in closer to you, that God, our questions, our curiosity, our investigation, God, would be uh, rewarded many times over with a knowledge of you that springs up into eternal life. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.